You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, well, for the last time, we're in the book of Acts as we finish up our series on unity this morning. So feel free to take out your Bibles and uh, sermon outline if you brought them with, or uh, you pull it up on your phone if that helps you as well to follow along. Um, This series on unity, I hope, has been helpful for you. It's been helpful for me as I've been thinking about what does it mean that we are a unified community of faith here in Seal Beach and around the world, maybe especially on this All Saints Day week, uh, thinking about what it means that we are gathered with with all Christians at all times and all places in one invisible church uh, unified in Christ. Um, This has been a a helpful thing for me to think about because I get so active. I get asked so often about how the unity of our church is doing. Uh, Well-meaning people in our church and and even outside in my life will say, hey, how's your church holding together through COVID, uh, through political divisions, through stuff we see on the news, through cultural challenges and trials? And because we're kind of an anxious age, an anxious generation that kind of fears what might be coming, uh, people assume that takes a part in our church as well. And they say, I just, I hope that it's not like I see out there in the world. I hope that we're not sort of splintering apart. And and what's underneath that is often a deep care for for a church they love or for people they love, which I really empathize with, and out of understandable fears on how the world can force its way in uh, to a a community of faith in ways that, that are very real and that do happen in churches. But I'd say also underneath that is a misplaced assumption that the unity of the church is kind of up to us, that, that if we don't hold it together, nobody will. And uh, we're, we're getting to the end of the series on unity, and usually at the end of a series, it comes with some big applications, some big, here guys, it's up to you. And I kind of want to do the, the opposite today. <laughs> I want to say, actually, as we get to the end of the unity series, what I hope you'll find is a surprising expectation that that actually the unity of the church is up to God. That God is the one who has brought us together and he is the one that will hold us together. My goal in these last few verses here in Acts 28 is for us to recognize the providence of God in our unity. That we will see that this is not um, some sort of things like water slipping through our hands, that the unity of the church is, is up to us and we better not mess it up, but rather that the unity of the church, universal, and eternal has been created and sustained and earned by Jesus and that we get to hold together what he is already holding together. So this is going to be a really short passage. Don't mistake that for a short sermon. Sorry. Um, from Acts 28. And, and uh, at the end of it, so we'll go through these, these few verses together from Acts 28 that uh, Denise read so well in spite of the odd names in there. And then we'll spend a few minutes at the end sort of thinking through the series as a whole. Just sort of going back all the way through Acts uh, if it's your first week here, you get the whole, the whole kit and caboodle in one week. Um, if you've been part of these other sermons, been part of these other weeks in this series, it'll give you an opportunity to sort of pray and reflect, oh yeah, let, how does this all fit together? And uh, what are we going to do about it as a community? So let's uh, jump into it here in Acts 28. Um, we'll start in uh, the, the, we'll start towards the end actually. Um, in one of the phrases I really want you to notice here in verse 15. When Paul comes to Rome, it says he sees The brothers, and on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. I guess if there's one thing I I would want you to take out of this passage in particular, it's that phrase. That when Paul saw the believers, 
He thanked God and he took courage. This is how the unity of the church is a a meaningful doctrine for your life personally. That the unity of the church is a gift from God, right? That, That it's something that we're to be thankful to God for, that he has created and sustained and that we get a benefit from. And that you and I take courage from that. That we, that we benefit from that in a meaningful way. Now, is there anyone in the history of the New Testament who demonstrates more perseverance than Paul? Right? We read about all the ways that he uh, endured suffering, he endured hardship, he endured imprisonment, uh, being beat, being stoned. Uh, if there's someone who is resolute and who doesn't seem to need uh, anybody else's opinion or anyone else's favor of him, it's Paul. And yet, when Paul sees the other believers He takes courage from their presence. You and I have the same need for one another. We need to take courage from one another. So I I find this passage beautiful, and I I would want that for you, that when you come to church on a Sunday, when you participate in a life group, when you're uh, in Christian friendship and you, you get together with people, that you would thank God for those people and that you would take courage from those relationships. Uh, let's back up a little bit and see how Paul gets here. And, and let's get to the travelogue part in verse 11. This is the part of Acts that um, makes up about the last third of the book from chapter 21 on to the end here in chapter 28. Um, it sort of documents this extended travel time from Paul going to Jer- from Jerusalem to Rome. Uh, Christians have long wondered why so much of Acts is devoted to this journey. Why does this seem so important? And there's a lot of theories about that. Some people think that maybe Paul, was, maybe that Luke wrote this as a document of um, Paul's experience leading up to his trial. Like maybe this was a defense document before Theophilus the judge. Could be. Uh, other people think Luke devoted so much time to this because this was a major experience in his life that he shared with Paul, and so he wanted to write it down. That could be. Uh, we don't really know, but from, for about seven chapters, Paul uh, goes from being imprisoned in Jerusalem, appealing to Caesar, and then having to make the long trip from Jerusalem to Rome in order to be tried before Caesar. Uh, and this trip is marked with hardship every step of the way. He is, uh, after he's arrested, he faces shipwreck, he faces being bit by a viper, he is delayed over and over and over again. And that's where we pick up here at Acts 28. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. By the way, this is one of the notes that uh, Luke scatters throughout Acts 28 to describe all the different ways that um, paganism is trying to sort of put its mark on Paul, and yet God is in control over all these things. So they set sail on a ship that's marked, specifically marked with, with idols on it, And Paul's like, no problem. Like, God's in control. You can put idols on your ship. doesn't bother me. Um, Verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and then we made the circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and we came to Puteoli. So why does Luke give us this level of historical detail? Again, we, we don't know for sure, but it is all historically accurate, which reflects that Luke was probably there himself or or had first... uh, another firsthand account of it, and it shows the reliability of what was happening. But the reason I'm highlighting this level of detail is to show you God's level of providence over all that's happening. As Paul will come uh, towards Rome, you're going to think he had no control over what brought him to this place. He's literally a prisoner. Like, this is happening against his will. 
And then when he gets there in verse 14, it says, There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And I know this is only two words, but I want you to notice that phrase, we found brothers. Found brothers. I, I don't know why that stuck out to me so much this week. Uh, he's never been to Puteoli before. Right? These are not people he knows. These are not people he shares certainly biological kinship with, but even friendship with. But it says, there we found brothers. I don't know if you guys ever watch YouTube videos or, or TV shows where they reconnect people who are related by blood who have never met. Sometimes there's a, an adoption that's played a part or a family secret no one told each other and they find out as adults like oh I, I did 23andMe and I have a brother and I'm going to go meet him and why not invite a camera crew and let's uh, and it's really an arrest for me at least it's an emotionally arresting thing to, to see people who are connected in such meaningful ways and yet have never met and there's some sadness to it sometimes so you think oh, all they missed out on but also joy that they, that they found each other and Luke says, every time we went into a city, we found brothers. Right? This is not just a, an idiom or a, a, just a, a play on words. This is a real theological reality he's reflecting on. The idea that in Puteoli, there were, there were people who, because God is their father, they are our brothers. You and I, every time we go somewhere in Christ, we visit a new church, we meet people in our church we've never met before, we go halfway around the world, we meet other Christians, we are finding brothers and sisters. As John prayed earlier in the service, I'm going to be part of a team of five of us from our church that's going to go to Sierra Leone this coming Saturday. And we're going to be there for two weeks, so um, I won't be here the next two Sundays with you all. Uh, but I am going to be finding brothers and sisters in Sierra Leone. Uh, people I've never met, people who don't look like me, people who probably don't speak much of the same language, but because God is their father... And Christ is their savior, they are my brothers and sisters, and I theirs. Right? We, we find brothers. And um, if I can just, this is not part of the sermon, but just because I have the microphone. Uh, just as a dad, can I ask something? The next two Sundays when you see my kids, if you, ask, if you see them um, and you say, please don't say, how are you doing with your dad being gone? Because they're little, they don't know. They're sad or angry or happy, I don't know. But but please don't, please don't ask my four-year-old how he's doing with dad being gone unless you want him to throw a tantrum. So just, just as an aside. <laughs> um, all right, back to the sermon. Thinking about the providence of God in our unity, I think really helps calm what it means for us to be in community together. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that one of the hallmarks of this generation, and I don't, I don't mean millennials or Gen Z, I mean all of us who are alive right now, is that we are living through an anxious age where we feel that we are really powerful to affect the world and therefore very concerned that we're going to affect it in negative ways. Some of that's founded, maybe some of that's not so founded, but, but that anxiety sort of creeps into our relationships very often. And that anxiety shapes the way that we approach romantic relationships, the way that we approach friendships, and in a way that affects the way we experience church. And so because of that anxiety, and rather than the providence of God, um, we ask questions often about our church of, do they like me here? Are there people like me here? Is there a better church for me out there? Are there better friends I could find? Maybe I should keep looking. Well, maybe I don't fit in, right? And that anxiety can really undercut how it means for us to be present with other people. If we see the providence of God in our unity, we can, we can pray prayers like, 
God, in this flawed community, you have given me every resource I need in the spirit for life and godliness. God, in this flawed community, there is every resource I need in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. God, help me be at peace with where I am. Now, I'm not saying there's never time to uh, reconsider your engagement with a church or with a group or with a ministry or that there's never a time to move on. This is not some sort of plea to say, never leave our church. It's not that. It's for your sake, for your soul's sake, when you recognize the providence of God as, as shaping our experience of unity with one another, it, it enables us to, to lower our defenses to the fears we have that we're missing out and, and instead pick up the confidence we have that, that God is in control. Just as God was in control of bringing Paul to Puteoli and this small community of believers where he would find brothers, I, I am utterly confident that you and I can find brothers and sisters in Christ here and in any church that we participate in that follows Christ as Lord. Now, um, that providence of God really shapes how Paul experiences what it means to be with these Christians and what it means for them to minister to them. This happens as he rolls into Rome 2 in verse 15. Uh, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. The three taverns. I, I, this is a terrible joke, but this is where all the Baptists come from, right? right? Three taverns. Uh, on seeing them, I'm not proud of that joke, by the way. I just want to let you know that. I'm not proud of that. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. That's the phrase we read earlier, right? When Paul, it, we get this picture of sort of this, you know, this handful of Roman Christians coming down the road and Paul just setting sight on them and saying, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God that they're here. I mean, this is, uh, I'm sure, an emotional time for Paul. He's been uh, endeavoring to get to Rome for who knows how many years, hoping that one day he'll be able to proclaim the gospel there. He's written his letter to the Romans, which is the next book in your Bible, called Romans, where he talks about how he longs one day to come to their city, and he's finally come. Probably not in the circumstances he expected or wanted, uh, post-shipwreck, in chains, you know, this is maybe not the means he thought he would show up, but nevertheless, he's there. And so it's undoubtedly an emotional time, but part of what shapes him in this moment is seeing other Christians and seeing their presence. You came to church today with people that have the capacity to give that same sort of gift to you, right? That when you see them, you thank God and you can take courage from their presence. When you participate in a life group together or when you're in a Stephen ministry relationship or you're in a spiritual friendship with people, you can thank God for them because they are giving you courage. Now, I mentioned, you know, Paul, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. You know, prior to coming here, he's never been to Rome. This is not one of the missionary journeys that he's gone on. This is not a place where he has a lot of old friends. I point this out to say, it's not that Paul was like, Jim, Sally, I'm so glad to see you. It's more like, I'm so glad to see you. What's your name? <laughs> right? These are strangers to him from the world's eyes. And yet because they are Christians, they bring a gift to him. 
Now, Paul may have known a handful of them from other travels and other places. If you read the rest of the book of Romans, like in Romans 16, he will cite some people by name that maybe he had met in Corinth or Ephesus and some other places. But by and large, these are strangers to him. And even though they're strangers, he knew them. Here's what I mean. In Romans 1.7, this is what he knows about him. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. If you're a Christian, even if I don't know you, I know that you are loved by God and called to be a saint. Right? If, if Paul comes over the hill and he comes into Rome and he says, I, I don't know you by name, but I know that you're my brother and that you're my sister. Right? And therefore, we are unified whether there's anything between us on a human level or not. Our past, that's why our passage um, says that he can already thank God and take courage from them. Uh, this impact on Paul is significant, and it, it is a little surprising to us because Paul has wrote about unity a lot, right? hasn't he? Uh, uh, Kurt read earlier from Ephesians 2 that talks about how in Christ we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're together in one community of faith with the dividing wall of hostility destroyed between us. Paul wrote that, right? He knows this intellectually, but the experience of fellowship still has a meaningful uh, impact on his ability to live out his faith. In the same way, it's not enough for you and I to know or to assent or to agree uh, in the doctrine of all believers, the unity of all believers, but it's another thing for us to experience it, to live it, to, to be in fellowship one with another. Now, um, you know, sometimes I can have kind of a cynical voice in my head. Maybe you guys have this one too. And there's part of me that thinks, well, Bob, if you need your faith reinforced so much from other people, like if you need to take courage from others in their faith, if you sort of need this, this uh, camaraderie so often, maybe your faith isn't that strong. Maybe your faith is mistaken. Maybe you're just leaning on them because you don't have enough internal faith on your own. Isn't that a sign that your faith is... Uh, problematic in some sort of way. I mean, if you really believed it, you wouldn't need everyone else. You could just believe it, right? You don't, you don't get together and talk about gravity and remind each other that gravity is true. It's just true, right? If Christianity is true, why do you need to go every week and be reminded of it? Um, you guys probably never had that doubt. This is just, just me talking. Um, now, uh, to respond to that, actually, I thought about all the ways that uh, we are susceptible to being misled by the world. Right? I think one of the reasons why I don't get, go to a meeting about gravity is that the world, the flesh, and the devil do not collude together to tell me lies about gravity. Though I do believe they collude together to tell me lies about God. Um, I don't know if you guys ever took like, social psychology in college or intro to psychology classes, but there are, are weird people called psychologists. I'm married to one of them. And uh, they do experiments where they see what impact we have on one another, especially the field of social psychology. And there's a whole, whole host of experiments of what happens if we put one person in a room where everyone else lies to them about something. Will eventually that person agree? So they'll do things like they'll show a whole group the color green, and they'll ask everyone, and everyone but one person will be in on it, and everyone else will say, oh, that's yellow. And eventually the one person who's being experimented on, though they don't realize it, will say, oh yeah, I guess it's yellow. My eyes must be wrong, right? Or there'll, there'll be a whole host of people who will agree uh, to pretend to torture someone. This is a famous experiment from the 1960s. 
And if there's only one person, not only will they not intervene, eventually often they'll push the button themselves to think that they're torturing someone. Why do I say this? Uh, it's not that your and my faith is problematic and that's why we need one another to take courage. It's that you and I as people are in need of one another, right? And this isn't just true in our faith, this is true in all areas of our life. That if we, we don't have the reinforcement and the courage that come from uh, other people, we're susceptible to doing wicked and foolish things. There's nothing wrong or problematic with our faith that says that we need this any more than there is with the rest of our ethics, morals, or other beliefs in this world. All right. Well, that, that's the path. I'm almost out of time. I said we were going to save some time to go over the whole book of Acts. So I saved six minutes. Let's do that. Um, so we started in chapter one with the description of how the early church was going to pick up the pieces after uh, Jesus had left and he had ascended to the Father. And he said he was going to leave them his spirit and they'd be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the first passage we looked at was uh, at the end of Acts 1 where they choose a new disciple to replace Judas because they recognized that they needed one another. They needed another witness to the resurrection and that they weren't capable of making that choice on their own apart from God. We looked at how unity requires our need for one another and also our humility for God to bring us together. Then in chapter 2, we looked at the core disciplines of our Christian faith, how the disciples uh, gathered together every day and they uh, broke bread together, they prayed together, um, and as a result of that, they saw many people come to know the Lord. In chapter 4 and in chapter 20, we talked about generosity and how unity and generosity reinforce one another. That if we're truly unified, it shows up in the way that we care for one another. Then in chapter 8, we talked about an odd passage, Simon the Magician. We talked about how the gospel went to the Samaritans, but in the midst of going to the Samaritans and how the gospel was for everyone, there would be some people, like Simon the Magician, who would try to use it for selfish and financial gain. And then in chapter 10, we talked about uh, the gospel going to the Gentiles and how no one is unclean. In chapter 15, we talked about two sides of the coin when it came to unity, what it means to stay together when it's hard, like the Jerusalem Council, and how easy it is to divide when we're selfish, like Paul and Barnabas. Then just a couple weeks ago, we talked about chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila, and how for us to be unified, it means being willing to listen to one another, even when it seems like other people maybe don't have the, uh, the, in, the background or the resources that we have. Really, overall, we talked about how unity requires humility from everyone involved to recognize that God is in control. My hope in, in looking through this and in going through this series with you has been that, yes, our unity as a church would grow. But more than that, we would demonstrate the unity of God in how we uh, recognize the church universal. This is All Saints Weekend, um, and it's something that we celebrate as a, as a local church in recognition that there are Christians out there in history and out there in the world that while we may never meet, that matter to God. And so in our unity with them, we get to celebrate what God has done. There's a phrase that's often said at weddings, what the Lord has joined together, let no man put asunder. I don't know what asunder means. I mean, I do know what it means, but it's, it's not a phrase we use every day. Um, but what's behind that beautiful phrase at weddings is the idea that, that God has joined the couple together and it's our role as 
as a husband and wife. It's our role as friends and family to not try to divide what God has unified. I think that same phrase could be applied to the church, right? What, what God has joined together, let none of us put asunder. Part of what I hope that you and I will get out of this series is that God has joined us together as a community of faith. Does your, uh, and that you and I have an opportunity to participate in and enjoy that unity. Now, it doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do to be a part of it. Um, Pastor Tim mentioned earlier the grace conversations. If you find yourself um, unable to have meaningful conversations with people that disagree with you, I'd encourage you to be part of those in order to better help facilitate and enjoy the unity of the church. Similarly, uh, if you look in your life right now and you notice there are some relationships out of whack within the community of faith or within your own personal community, I'd encourage you to take seriously Jesus' warning in the Gospels where he says, does your brother have anything against you? If so, put down your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Not because it's on your shoulders to maintain the unity of the church, but that you want to be able to enjoy the unity that Christ has created. Um, we're going to take communion here in a couple of minutes. And one of the aspects of communion that I find so meaningful and beautiful is that communion is given for all of us. And that that's why we take it together. I know that in some churches or in some families that we would take, people would take communion sort of individually off on their own. I'm really glad that when we practice communion, we do it together collectively as a church. Because it's a reminder that we're unified together in Christ. As we come to this table together, I hope that you'll take some time to reflect on what you can do to help enjoy and facilitate the unity of Christ's church here at Grace. Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters here. I'm grateful for all the ways that they um, enjoy and, and encourage the unity of believers. But God, that's not in our hands. That's in your hands. You're the one who has kept us together. And even when our church or any local church uh, becomes divided over issues of this world or over selfishness or through sin, it doesn't call into question the fact that you are in control and that you ultimately will preserve your people forever. God, as we take communion together, would you help us to enjoy that unity afresh this morning? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.